Well, it's great to be here with you this morning on this beautiful summer day. And for those of you who are early shoppers, just want to let you know we're halfway to Christmas officially today. And so you might want to get at it. Uh, but uh, it is great to be here. We've been in this series, David, a man after God's own heart. And we're concluding the series this morning. And I hope that just a little bit that we've been able to touch on the life of David has whet your appetite to dig into the scripture to learn more. David's spoken of more in scripture than anyone else except for God himself. And so uh, it's worth exploring. Why, why did God put so much of his story in there? Because there's so much to learn from him. And we've looked at really a lot, of, a lot of high points in David's life. And yet we find from this morning's account from David's life, that, that even those who, who have focused on the Lord can lose their focus. In fact, what we learn is that people don't drift towards commitment, but actually drift away from commitment. People don't just naturally drift toward commitment, they actually drift away from commitment. And, and so we have to have intentionality if we're going to stay focused. And as we've looked at David, we've looked at some of the high points. I mean, David had this amazing friendship with Jonathan. I mean, David's the giant slayer, you know, going up with great faith against Goliath. He, he outlasts the madman Saul, and he, so he outlasts kings. I mean, it, this is a warrior of God, and, and yet we find that even, even this man who was, who was so strong in all these situations is derailed. He's derailed. David's integrity is lost, and it's lost by the sight of a beautiful bathing woman. Of course, we're talking about David and Bathsheba, the scandal that rocked the royal household. This man, David, a man after God's own heart, finds himself spiraling downward into an adulterous relationship, which even leads to a murderous cover-up. And yet, the story of, of one of the lowest moments in David's life gives us a beautiful picture of God's profound grace and love. But even in the midst of this low point, God shows himself to be faithful and available. And, and ultimately, David finds that, that sin wasn't worth the cost, and temptation will always promise you more than it can deliver and cost you more than you can pay. But he's also going to find the goodness of the Lord. Uh, let's just be honest this morning. Let, let's just get right to it. Sin reeks. Uh, allow the Lord to purge that junk from your life. Come to the Lord for forgiveness, which is always available. God's grace always restores us. But all things considered, sin is never worth it. How many of you have ever read, written, uh, read, read <laughs> let me start out again. How many of you have ever read the book, The Oath by Frank Peretti? Last service, there were three of us. Now I'm the, oh, okay, there's four of us in this one. That's great. Um, it, it's a novel. It's an old novel. It, it's worth the read just for this image. In the book, there's, there's a dragon. It's sort of this, this uh, shows us, it sucks the life out of people. It's a representation of sin. And, and the image of this, of this sucking out of life of individuals is, is really a, uh, an accurate picture of what sin does. Sin robs us of freedom. It, it robs us of joy. And God wants us to live in freedom and live in joy. And, and so what, what the Bible does, it honestly records the lives of people. Like I said, we've been looking at all the hype, these high points in David's life. And if I were to write sort of my Bible, uh, I would only put high points. How about you? Especially the parts that had to deal with me. And yet the Bible shows the good, the bad, and the ugly because it's in each of those circumstances that we're mentored. And so far, we've been mentored from David to say, here's things to do. 
Have faith. Understand there's faith that, that allows you to, to attack the giants in your life. But this week, we're going to look at, at least for part of it, uh, something not to do. Not to drift. Not to find ourselves in the same place David found himself. And yet, we'll end up finding a great example of what we can do if we find ourselves there. Well, let's jump into the account. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 4. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Now we got to remember, first of all, David's not a teenager. He's not in his 20s. He's a middle-aged man. He's had many years walking with the Lord. Also, he did not just naively walk into sin, but he had deliberately made choices that allowed himself to be in this place. Maybe you've been in a place in your life and you thought, how did I get here? Anyone ever say that? How did I get here? Let me give you a little suggestion. Turn around, look at where you came from. You got there intentionally. It was decisions. It was, it was situations. And, and so David got here because he had made some bad decisions. Now, let me make some things clear before we head into some of those bad decisions David made. First of all, it was David who was on the rooftop, not Bathsheba. David was on the rooftop. Nothing wrong being on the rooftop, but the king's palace rooftop would have been the highest rooftop. And so he's sort of looking around. I don't think he started out as a peeking, peeping Tom, but he certainly ended up as one. He's looking out over his, his people, if you will. And then there's Bathsheba. What is she doing? She's simply following the Levitical law. She's, she's purifying herself, as the scripture had, had told that she should do in this situation. But David takes the initiative. He sees her. And there's nothing wrong with the fact he saw Bathsheba. It's that he looked intently. And then he goes further to say, who is that woman? He brings her to him, even when he finds out who she is, and we'll look at that in a minute. And then he sleeps with her. Now, understand that nowhere in Scripture does it say that he forced himself, but in Scripture, it's very clear he took the initiative. And so David's making these series of wrong choices. The first is this that led to this moment. David arrogantly stayed home when he should have been on the battlefield. David wasn't where he should have been. As a matter of fact, the, the writer wants us to know that. It says, in the spring of the year, when the kings go out to battle, you're like, what's David going to do? Well, David sends Joab and his servants and all of Israel to go fight for him. When the kings go out to battle, the king was home. He, he's turned his back on his kingly duties, if you will. He's rested in his own victories and his prosperity that God had given. He's, he's sort of laying back on those things. He sends Joab, his commander, and others to go fight the battles for him. He's being proud. I'm the king. I don't have to do such work anymore. Temptation will come strongly to those who are proud. In fact, pride in ourselves leads to us to face temptation in our own power often leading us to be where we ought not to be, believing that we can falsely overcome in our own strength. Proverbs 11.2 reads, 
When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Isn't that the truth? I was just talking to someone in between these services, and I said, it's interesting. When I was much younger, I thought I knew more than I know I don't know now. Think about that for a minute. thought I knew much more than I know I don't know now. The second thing David did that really was a, a poor decision, poor choice on his part, was David was idle. He was in bed in late afternoon. Now, let me not get in trouble this morning. There's nothing wrong with the occasional nap. Okay, I'm not saying that. There's nothing wrong with rest. But I ask you this question, what was he resting from? <laughs> he wasn't in battle. He wasn't doing his kingly duties. He's just laying around, just sort of doing nothing. He stayed home. And, and his idleness led to no good. His idleness led to no good. Another choice that David made that was poor was he was careless, allowing his eyes to wander. Let me be clear on this one. The problem, again, was not that David saw Bathsheba. In fact, it wasn't that David saw Bathsheba and thought she was beautiful. There was nothing wrong with that. It was how intently he looked. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. What's that mean in context? It's not saying that, 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 that creation is any way bad. In fact, John's not demonizing creation. He's talking about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. He's, he's talking about our selfishness. In fact, even when we talk about desires, it's not that human desires in and of themselves are bad. It's when we don't allow those desires to rest in the hands of God and his leading. And so not all of our desires are bad. A desire to succeed is not necessarily a bad desire. Desire for love is not necessarily a bad desire. But we need to place that in the hands of God or it can get really crazy quick. I can remember growing up in Florida. And when I grew up in Florida, we spent a lot of time at the beach. Even our student ministry spent a lot of time at the beach. In fact, I didn't know until I graduated from high school and went to college in Indiana. But there were some Christians who don't believe that men and women should swim together. In fact, the term they used was mixed bathing. Has anyone ever heard that term? I didn't hear that term until I was 18 years old. And when someone said, are you okay with mixed bathing? I thought they literally meant like an unmarried man and woman bathing together. And I thought, well, of course not. And they said, no, no, we're talking about swimming. And being from Florida, I said, that's just stupid. I actually said that. Uh, I was younger. And so I didn't get what the thing was. I mean, how do you go to the beach and not... Are you following me? But... Our student pastor, Paul, would often say to us, and he usually spoke to us guys. I don't know why. He always said to guys, not the girls, the guys. He said, it's not the first glance that gets you, it's the second one. Think about that for a minute. It's not the first glance that gets you, it's the second one. Now, of course, being teenagers and smart Alex, we would always look at Paul and say, I haven't blinked yet. <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to make sure you're with me there. But you get what Paul was saying, and you get what David didn't do. David looked intently. James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. That's what David was a part of. The other wrong choice that 
David deliberately made was uh, David was selfish, giving freedom to his desires. David was selfish, giving into the temptation and, and bringing Bathsheba in and, and thinking that, that, that all this was okay because after all, he was the king. One of the first verses I ever memorized was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I was in high school. I was in this, this one-on-one discipleship with an individual named Conrad. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is, is a powerful verse. It says, no temptation has seized us except that which is common to man. But God is faithful. Do not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But when we are tempted, will give us the power to stand up under it. In other words, we don't have to give in to temptation. I've heard people say, you know, well, I'm only human. Well, if you're only human, you need God. I'm only human. I need God. How about you? But the promise of that verse is that God gives us the power to overcome the temptations in our life, to choose the right path. But David, David, uh, David didn't do that. He could have defeated temptation if he had turned to the Lord. He could have defeated temptation if he had lived according to the word. Exodus 20, 14, you should not commit adultery. He could, have, he could have had that verse in his mind. He could have been praying to the Lord, Lord, give me strength here. Help me do the right thing, not the wrong thing. But instead, he chose to dishonor his God, himself, his people. Now, who was Bathsheba? Bathsheba is the wife of one of his bravest warriors, I mean, to me, that makes it a little worse even, right? Like when he asks who this woman is, this beautiful woman, and she says, hey, he, she's, the, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He knew right off the bat, wow, he's one of my most loyal and bravest soldiers. Well, I should take advantage of her. She was the granddaughter of, and I'm going to hack this name, Ahithophel. I think that's the way you pronounce it, but we'll go there. Um, and he, he was an interesting individual we know in Israel's history because later what will happen to David is one of his sons, Absalom, usurps his throne. Absalom becomes king for a little while, throws his dad off the throne. And it's Ophiphophel, oh my goodness, that's a hard name, uh, that actually is one of the biggest supporters of Absalom, her grandfather. Now let me ask you this question. I, I would guess none of us, none of us have trouble understanding why Bathsheba's grandfather was not a big fan of David. Causing problems later. It's too bad that the record of this godly man, David, was marred forever because of this matter of Uriah the Hittite. You say, what do you mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, it says, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Again, the Bible shows the good, the bad, and the ugly, doesn't it? Long story short, Bathsheba gets pregnant by David. And so David tries to cover it up. He comes up with this plan. He says, you know what? I'm going to send for Uriah to come back from the battlefield. And then I'm going to encourage him to go home. He hasn't seen his wife in a long time. I'll just let nature take its course. You're all on the same page, right? We're in church. I don't have to go any further than that. All right. And so this David has this great plan. Comes back. Uriah tells him how the battle's going. He says, you go home now. You deserve it. Uriah is such a man of, your, of integrity that he says, none of my brothers on the battlefield get this opportunity. I'm not going to go into my house and I'm not going to spend time with my wife. That ruins David's plan. Now what's he going to do? The spiral of sin. He moves from deception to murder. 
He says to the commander, he says, this is what I want you to do in this battle of this fortified city. I want you to go up to the wall. And when you get up to the wall, make sure Uriah is leading the charge. And when you get to the wall, everyone else back away and leave Uriah there to die. That's what happens. David then marries Bathsheba, cover up after cover up after cover up. And and when we think about this, when we continue in sin, we find out that sin begets sin that begets sin, leading to a horrific downward spiral. And I think David felt that he was probably fooling people. As a matter of fact, there were probably people within the court of David who thought, wow, David is such a godly man. He loved Uriah so much that when Uriah died, he took his wife as it took his wife to be his wife to care for her. What a great man. Yet I'm reminded you may be able to fool people, but you can never fool the Lord. Can never fool the Lord. Proverbs 5.21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. We're unsure of exactly the time frame that's taken place, but, but some time has, has gone by, possibly about a year. And David now has sort of moved on. But we find David a diminished individual. He's physically weak. He's, he's sick, he's lost his joy, his witness, and God's power in his life. He's, he's a depleted man, a depleted man. And, and he's been hiding this sin for so long. And so God finally knocks on his door in the form of Nathan the prophet. And Nathan's going to share really sort of a crazy story to bring to light what David has been hiding for so long. I'll share you what's crazy in a minute. But 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there are two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of the morsels and drink from his cup and lay in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. That's the weird part. Okay, verse four. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned with great, great kindled uh, against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So this, this anger is this welling up between David. How could a man be so selfish? How could he take a lamb from this poor person when he had so much? And then Nathan said to David, verse 7, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. He gives this whole list and basically says, this is all that God has done for you, and this is how you repaid him. I don't think any of us need to be told, but it's a great reminder of how sin can blind us. I mean, look at what David had done compared to the man in the story. The man in the story had just taken a lamb. David had taken a man's wife, had had the man killed, had, had, had pretended to be such a good guy that he took him in as his wife. And Nathan says, no, no, no. You're that man. You're the one who's done this. David is... I would guess in one of the lowest points in his life. But what he does here is an example for all of us to follow. 
When he's at the lowest point in his life, when, when Nathan the prophet has said to him, God's done all this for you and you've repaid him with this, David could have done what many people do, unfortunately, and that's run away from the Lord. They fear God. They run away. I, I, can't, I can't look them in the eye. I, I, can't, I can't come there. But David does the exact thing. He runs to God. He's broken. He repents. And he prays to God. And how do we know? Because we actually have his prayer in Scripture, Psalm 51. Probably one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 51 is actually what David prayed to God. And God said, I want you to know what David did. This man after my own heart. Not a man after my own heart because he always did everything right. A man after my own heart because he always knew he could return to me. I want you to hear his words. Psalm 51. Let's look at some of the Psalms. Psalm 51, 1 through 4. David prays. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Watch me thoroughly in my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What's he do? He appeals to God's mercy, that he knows that God is full of grace and kindness, and he, he humbles himself before God. He owns his sin. He owns it. Lord, what I've done is wrong. Forgive me. Cleanse me. David proclaims this, though. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I think I was in high school when I first came across this account in Scripture, reading it. And, and that, that statement bothered me. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I thought, well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about putting Joab the commander in the place to where he had to murder one of his buddies and one of his most loyal soldiers? What about all those people? And so I went and asked someone, I said, help me work through this. And they, they worked through it with me. And it, it amazes me to realize, now what, what, what David's saying isn't that he didn't sin against other people, but until you deal with sin with God, you don't have the power to make things right with other people. And that ultimately God is the only true judge because he's the only one that's perfect. Like God's perfect, we're not. That's why we need God, right? Because we are human, because we do need him. In fact, if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I'm not messed up, I don't need God, you're really messed up. And David understood this. He continues, verses 10 through 13. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Catch this, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Forgive me, cleanse me, make me whole. Help me walk in the right path. Then I'll help others not make the mistakes I've made. I'll be used by you. Some people think that when, when, you, when you fall into sin, you've been disqualified. And the reality is when you find forgiveness and cleansing from God, God is the, is the God of first, second, third, fourth, fifth, seventh, many chances. Amen, church? And he builds us back up and he uses us. He doesn't just use the high points in his life, our life. He uses the low points as well to be examples to others. Don't do what I did. I can remember... Maybe it was high school, maybe college, and I thought to myself, I'd rather learn from someone else's mistakes than make their mistakes in my life. Now, by the way, I haven't always lived up to that. <laughs> but it's something worth living up to. 
Here's the good news of God's word. In that same discipleship group I was in, that one-on-one discipleship in high school, one of the other verses I memorized was 1 John 1, 9. It stuck with me since my teen years. It's a powerful one. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we do what? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. It's interesting to me that so many of us, when we find ourselves in sin, will run away from God when he has his hands out saying, won't you just run to me? Let's deal with this. Let's deal with this. Believers come to Christ for salvation, confessing their sins, and initially receive salvation. Then we maintain fellowship with God and others by continuing to keep a short account with God. In other words, we, 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 we come to Jesus and he, he died for our sins. In fact, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means we don't have to fear punishment. So then why do we keep it a short account with God? Because sin will still rob us of the freedom and joy we have in Christ on this side of paradise. Because when we look at David, the same thing will happen to us. We'll be a depleted person instead of this abundant, filled person with the power and joy of the Lord. And God wants so much more for us. So much more. So there's two lessons I want to pull from this this morning. Lessons on sin and restoration. Here's the first one. Don't sin. It's that simple. Sort of. Don't sin. Be serious about it. Understand how devastating it is. Don't try to excuse it away. Don't try to cover it up. Have someone you can be honest with. Have someone you can, you can honestly say, look, I'm, I'm struggling in this area, but they can pray with you and keep you accountable and help you fight the good fight and not give up. Sin is ruthless. It'll destroy us. But the second thing is this. Don't remain in sin. So if you haven't completely followed the first one, Don't let that rob you of what God wants to do in your life. Don't remain in it. Confess it. Come to the Lord. Find find forgiveness and cleansing and, and renewal in Christ. That's the gospel message in a nutshell, isn't it? That God loved us so much that he sent his one only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, abundant life. Don't let the enemy whisper in your ear, oh, you messed up, now you're done. When he tries to remind you of of your past and things you've done, remind him of his future. And then you remember your future in Christ. God has so much for us. You say, Craig, are you saying you're perfect? (laughs) No, I'm not. In fact, you've heard me many times say, I know I'm not the man I ought to be, but I thank God I'm not the man I used to be. I'm a work in progress. But I am in progress and I am getting better. I am becoming more and more like my Savior. God's promised us the power over temptation. He's also promised us the ability to find forgiveness when we sin. It takes intentionality to stay focused as well as regain focus in our life. David lost it. Maybe you know what it's like to lose it too. But the reality of it is we're always just one step away from regaining it. Lord, thank you for 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We don't have to sin. But thank you for 1 John 1, 9. If we do, we find forgiveness and cleansing. Amen? 
So whether you're here in this room, at the chapel, online, I just want to encourage you, if you've never taken a step to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's the first step. That's a big step. Saying, Lord Jesus, cover my sins. And he has. He died on the cross for our sins. That's why we don't have to fear punishment because he was punished on our behalf. He was resurrected for our salvation. And so if you've yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, why not this morning enter into the freedom he has for you? You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't deserve that. None of us do. That's the point. That's how good our God is. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what his love demands. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, I'm really, I'm in a dark place. Like I relate to the first part of David's story. Can I encourage you? Why don't you relate to the second part? Don't let sin have the better of you. Confess it to the Lord, find cleansing, move on with him. Amen, church? God has so much in store for us. Let's not get trapped in the present when he has so much for us. He has so much for us. David was a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect, but because he constantly returned to a perfect God. Perfect in every way, including his love. His love for me, his love for you. Let's pray. Father God, there's, there's something that I notice over and over again in Scripture that's just amazing to me. And, and that's the, the amazing ability you have to constantly insert hope in some of the darkest moments. <laughs> over and over again as we read the accounts of, of people and peoples in Scripture, Lord God, and they're in these terrible situations, you never leave them without hope. And, and with David, it's the same thing. Not only did you not leave him without hope, you knocked on his door really hard by sending a prophet to wake him up. So that not only could he remember the hope he can have in you, but he could embrace the hope he has in you. And Lord, that's what my prayer is for my, for my church family this morning. For everyone, Lord God, who's listening to this message, whether on campus, whether off campus, whether it's years down the road through the internet, that at this moment, wherever they find themselves, that they would embrace the hope that you offer them in Jesus Christ. For the individual who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior right now, that say yes to you, Jesus. Be Lord and Savior of my life. Thank you for dying for my sins, being resurrected for my salvation. I want that freedom that can only come in you. Perhaps as a person who made that decision years ago, but they're struggling right now. Maybe they're struggling with sin, and, and the enemy's been whispering in their ear, you've got to give up. You've been disqualified. And I, I just want to remind them of this account in Scripture where God says, no, there's hope. Turn to me. Let me cleanse, forgive you and cleanse you. Let me make you whole. And let's move on together into a preferable future. God, thank you for loving us so completely, for never giving up on us, for never giving up on us. I pray we would never give up on you. In Jesus' name, amen.